0: It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the playoffs. We've got here, guys. Chris Carino here on the Voice of the Nets pod. I'm joined today by my longtime radio partner who talk about longevity. 1814 consecutive broadcasts for the Cavalier. We just finished our 21st regular season together. Um, And so... We, we also, because we spend too much time just talking to each other, we need someone else to bounce our <laughs> ideas off of. And we thought we'd give Frank Isola one more job this week.
1: So yeah. uh, is it not the best time of the year? It really is. The way you introduced me, you made it seem like you were saying that you've been together with Tim so long and now Frank's gonna be the guy replacing you, Tim. Here he is. Here's your oh, replacement. no. Melander. I need this, there Frank. No. You got a hundred jobs. No, I know. <laughs> Believe me, this is this. You're too good at it. I'm not. I'm not taking. I'm not taking your job. You. You know what? The NBA needs longevity. They need guys that work all the time. They need. You know, we need to see some something consistent. That's what you guys bring. So oh, wow. don't worry about it. Listen, and
0: and and Caber and I have been together for 21 years, so we know each other's thoughts in and out. <laughs> but uh, Frank, we should just 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 point out for people who don't know. Um, yes, Network studio analyst, the last few years, a great addition to the Nets team, broadcasting team. Uh, the starting lineup, which is the show on NBA Radio, which you and Brian Scalabrini host so well. Uh, it's it, you're a great duo. Um, Around the Horn, you fill in on PTI, formerly a uh, we all know him and love him in the New York area, is the Knicks beat writer for the Daily News. Uh, you wrote for the Athletic. Um, I think you're, are you opening a Walgreens
1: soon? Like, where, where <laughs> have I gotten everything in for you? That's, that, that's, that's about it. That That's uh, uh long time at the Daily News 20 years. That's right. 20, I know. Almost 25 years. Uh, and then they took, Tim, then they told me, we got so many replaced you,
2: you're out. So, yeah. I've had that before too, pal.
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> Um, uh, so how ironic was this yesterday as we're taping this the day after the regular season finale is, you know, kind of, you think about the superstar era of the Nets that came to an end this season, right? With the Durant Kyrie Irving trades midway through the year. Um, that era kind of came to an end. And I think if there's anything that can describe that era, uh, if you want to throw James Harden in there as well, that experiment is that brilliant when they were together but just we didn't see it enough, right? Just, they just weren't available enough. And ironically, the season ends with Mikkel Bridges mm. <laughs> playing in his 83rd game, extending his consecutive games streak to 392 consecutive games. And not just Mikkel, but you think about the starting lineup that after the trade, I think they started all but three games, right, since February. Once because uh, uh, Finney Smith got hurt and the Detroit game didn't play, and uh, the couple of games where they were just resting a bunch of guys. But Think about it, That five-man starting lineup played more minutes yeah. than any other five-man group for the Nets since the first year they were in Brooklyn. <laughs> I mean, think about how we went from Uh, you know, a a team that had the characteristic of not being available to this consistently available group. Um, Talk about a culture shift in a very short period of time, Frank.
1: Well, I think it's interesting because when people do talk about the group before and they talk about, oh, it was a failure. Well, let's remember, to be fair, they did win what was it? Six of their first seven playoff games together. And a couple of years ago, that team was wrong. I thought they were the best team yeah. in the league. But what only interrupted that run were injuries, the one to James Harden, then to Kyrie Irving. They were the better team. And then the following year, I thought Milwaukee was the better team and Milwaukee ended up losing to Boston. So what happens? Injuries happen to every team, but it was refreshing to see you make, you know, you make two dramatic trades like that. Not a lot of teams do that, In the middle of a season. Plus, you know, that group together had gone 18 and two. So on the one hand, you're trying to make a trade to keep your team afloat, but you're also doing it to rebuild and restock some of the draft picks that you lost in previous trades. That's why I think the moves were good because, or worked out really well, because you got guys that could help immediately. Plus now you still have assets down the road in terms of trades that you can make um, you know that are available to you. And I thought the, the additions were, were really good. You're in sixth place. Let's remember, guys, last year, yeah. we were getting ready for the playing game yep, that the Brooklyn right. Nets were going to play. They don't have to do that. To, to finish sixth this season, knowing that the team that you finished ahead is a quality opponent in Miami, you got Atlanta, was a conference finalist. Toronto, I still don't know how they're in that seven, eight, nine, ten 10 group because they're a really good team. I think all in all, considering how quickly they change on the fly, the Nets had a good season. And to your point, Having that consistently consistency in the starting lineup is part of it.
0: Yeah, and 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 not to not to paint this picture that, um, it was a runaway. You know, the lineup they had the last two months of the year was a runaway success. I mean, there are a couple of games under five hundred. I mean, they're yep. trying to get used to playing together. They're still probably a playmaker away from being, you know, a, a, a contending team with this group. But cert- I just think it's the the compete nature, the the mindset of we've got to you know, we're for the, we're for the team, we're for the community, we're, we're for each other. I think there were some things that not to disparage anybody else who was here, but I just feel like there's, there's this rebirth. I mean, you know, it's spring. And part of the thing I love about the playoffs <laughs> is the weather's getting nicer too. You know, yep. summer's coming up. Like yep. there there's this rebirth that I know, Capra, you and I have talked about it. You you felt this since the trade, maybe they're not, you know, they're not running away. Yeah. They held out of the sixth spot. They're right around a 500 team, but we can see it's like, the, the, the summer's coming, you know, like the, the, the good weather's coming. I, I you could
2: feel that it was tangible when the season. And ended. the ener- Yeah. They were energy givers. These guys, you know, you just felt like they were going to uh, just bring life to this team. I remember the opening press conference with Cam Johnson and milk, Mikkel Bridges sitting up on their desk together and I'm looking at you and I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, Wow. These are the type of people you want to be around right now. And uh, they made the best of it. Finney Smith made the best of it. Spencer Dinwiddie has certainly been a good addition. Uh, listen, there's a, a lot to like and really a lot to like about the job that Jock Vaughn has done with this group. And, and don't,
1: don't you guys agree that the idea of not only the four guys that they brought in the last two years, think about the games that these guys have played yeah. in both, well, uh, all four players have been to a conference finals, and Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges have been to an NBA finals in the last two years. Those are the so you're not only bringing quality people, and they're great. I mean, Mikael Bridges is off the charts. What a like a face of the franchise he can be. But they've also been involved in important games and have played important roles. That means something as well. Yeah, because we were talking about how it's
0: a good opportunity this playoff series, and we'll get into the matchup a little bit. But the, but the series is a good opportunity. To sort of see these guys and how they react together, and and you know, see them in a playoff setting. But like you said, they've they've got, they've got guys that have been experienced. Even Spencer Dinwiddie has been in the playoffs. He's actually played in Philadelphia in the playoffs. So yeah, um, you know, that's been that way. And I and I, you know, there there's going to be, you know, there'll be a lot of post mortem on the last four years with Brooklyn. Um, but I do think, you know, when you think about, you talk about Jacques Vaughn, and we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. We'll, we'll, we'll pin that for a second, Capper. All right. But I think it goes with Sean Marks. And think about, you know, sometimes, I mean, listen, they were primed for this a little bit in the offseason last year with the initial trade requests and, and that kind of thing. So you kind of, it got in everybody's mindset that this could actually happen. But then once things went, because things sort of started to go really well during the season, right? We had, after the initial bumpiness with the Kyrie suspension and everything, they come back and they win 12 in a row, and they're in the top two in the East, and you're thinking championship again, and then Kevin Durant gets hurt, and then, of course, Kyrie Irving then gets going a little bit. But then when that trade request comes down from Kyrie Irving, the Nets acted swiftly and decisively Mm. it's like all right Kyrie doesn't want to be here anymore let's find a deal we found one and now that's it that's going to be a domino into Kevin Durant and get that done very quietly and they were able to restock and replenish and set themselves up over the last two months of the season like you talked about Frank how how well they were able to do that on the fly trading two star players but the fact that they did it so swiftly and decisively didn't worry about some costs, just went and said, hey, we're going to move forward. Man, I think when you look back on
1: it, that was extraordinary. Yeah, it's it's such a crazy season. And if you go back over the summer, you know, much to the benefit of Kevin Durant and certainly the Brooklyn Nets, they couldn't find a deal for Kevin Durant that they wanted. If you're the Brooklyn Nets, he's on a contract for four years, we'll trade you if that's what you want, but we're going to get a deal that's good for us. So they waited. Kyrie Irving getting traded, that was to the detriment of Kyrie Irving. That was a mistake on his part because, and he wanted to go, and the Brooklyn Nets made a good trade. They got good players. Go ask people around the league what they think about Dorian Finney-Smith. Now, I know he's had moments in terms of shooting. Every person I talked to around in the NBA would want Dorian Finney-Smith. They know what kind of yeah. guy he is, what kind of player he is, and Spencer Dinwiddie can get it done. Go look at what he did in game seven last year against the Phoenix Suns. But then the deal that they make with Phoenix, I don't believe that that deal was available over the summer. I think if it was, there might have been a chance that the Nets would have made that deal. You're getting a guy, and Mikel Bridges has been in big games for Cam Johnson. I know he was coming off of an injury. I think he'll be much better even next season, plus all the draft picks that you got. I think Sean Marks to change up on the fly. Let's remember now when you name me a team that's trading two superstar players and still finishing in the top six in their conference. I mean, th- those are tr- you make trades like that in February, usually you're saying, we'll see you down the road, because we got something maybe in store for this summer, we're trying to clear cap space. So they accomplished two things. It's never easy to say to guy, uh, goodbye to a guy like Kevin Durant. And I got no problem with anything that Kevin Durant did here. You use the word, available. He just wasn't available enough. He came to the team limping, he left the team limping. He hurt when he was arrived, hurt when he left. Yeah. That was the only knock against him. The way that you guys saw every game he played, the guy's a brilliant player. He he works hard. He rebounds. He scores. He's a great teammate. Everything. It's just a shame that he wasn't available. But for Sean Marks to switch up like that, to get value back, yeah. stay competitive, and know that the future, you you still have a future out there. That was a that was a good one that he pulled off. Hey, Cabra,
0: you brought up Jacques Vaughn before. And and think about that. That before all this went into place, we had the coaching change. Steve Nash Nash's let go. Jacques Vaughn takes over and think of the tumultuous time when Jacques Vaughn took over and there was the talk of you know other coaches who might have been in that search um there was a, there was a lot of of turmoil there and tumultuousness and and Jacques Vaughn got up there and he's the guy these head coaches have to step up on that podium every day sometimes twice a day and all these moves are being made by owners and general managers. It's the coach, the head coach has got to stand up there and take all the slings and arrows every day. And he did it with such grace and class and optimism and energy. And I think that it really had a calming nature on the entire organization. And I know Cabra, you admire, you, you were a former coach and you admire when we go and see these different coaches around the league and their press conference how they handle themselves. Um, but bon got rewarded for really guiding this team through a difficult period this season.
2: Yeah, he was great. I mean, he's been great. Every night, he seems to have an optimistic way about him. He's very engaging with everyone. He kn- knows enough to know the people's name in the press. I always was shocked when coaches wouldn't address yeah. people by their name. That would bother me. And then it, why, how hard is it to get to know everybody? Well, he got to know everybody. and Everybody feels comfortable speaking with him. But you know what else? It's, it's the second time around, too, as being a head coach. And he also had other stints with the Brooklyn Nets in a bubble. You know, he spent some time there. I'm sure he's different than he was, a little bit different than he was the first time around in Orlando. That was not an easy situation. But you learn, you adjust, he engaged everyone. And I just think his positive, optimistic energy was not only good for, certainly good for us, but think about how that is for a team right? You're going through a long season. Man, I I just think he's a pleasure to be around. We talk so much about energy. That guy's an energy giver.
1: Tim, let me let me just ask you something about that. It's funny. You know, you guys are talking about all the experience you have, right? Mm-hmm. Only in coaching do we use the word recycled. Recyc- I get, it drives me nuts when I hear the word that it's a recycled coach. That means he has experience. You being a coach, how much better of a coach were you five, six, seven years ago? Look at Jock Vaughn. He's going naturally, he's just going to get better at the job. I guarantee you he's a better coach today than he was when he had his first job in Orlando. And,
2: and here's the best scenario. You coach, you get fired, you're an assistant, and you coach again. Because not only you get a long time to evaluate, feel it out, Remember what you didn't do well. Learn from new people, and then get a fresh start. Hey, listen, maybe one of the great coaches in our time is Bill Belichick. There was a time he coached the Cleveland Browns, and people didn't think that much of him. But you know, it turns yeah. out he he's pretty good at what he does.
0: Yeah. No, and, and you talked about Tim all the time about you, you're not you're not looking to go back into coaching, but these years spent as a broadcaster gave you a different perspective. And you said, you know, how much different you would do it. You know how how much differently you would do it now if you had a chance to do it over again.
2: Yeah, plus the times have changed dramatically since I coached the last twenty five thirty years. I I was still part of the Bobby Knight era where you where you ripped and you swore a lot, and it made you a better coach. I just think things are a lot better now the way guys do things, especially the NBA. Yeah, that doesn't work. Yeah. But uh, your knowledge here's the thing about NBA players; they can tell if you're a good coach the first three minutes you're on the floor. You better have an answer for them when they have a question that makes sense to them. Otherwise, they got you figured out the first day of practice. Well, it's funny. That's
0: the, that's the thing I always talk about with Jacques Vaughn is he's so straightforward, purposeful in everything he does and everything he says. You, they ask him a question. He never wavers. He never, uh, uh, it's just direct. Boom, he has an answer for you. Right away, when you see him walking through the hall, he's going somewhere. He's not strolling and looking around. Like he's <laughs> he's got a place to go. Um, and the other thing about I think Jock, and I think this was important in talking about a cultural shift. Right, we talk about going from guys that weren't available to now guys that are competing and want to play every day and and are about the team and about the organization. For four years, I mean, I I would always say it wasn't excuses, but it was kind of explanations. But in a way, it was excuses. You know, this guy was hurt. This guy was this. We didn't have this. Jacques Bourne's mantra from day one has been, no excuses. Doesn't matter. We played a fourth game in five nights. We're playing the second of a back-to-back. We don't have this guy. We don't have that guy. Doesn't matter. No excuses. And I think that has been an important cultural shift as well.
1: Yeah, and I I think that started... Where for me, where it really stood out was without Kevin Durant. Kyrie Irving's still on the team. Remember that you guys were on that West Coast trip. Remember they, they're playing, well, I forget what the game, they were going to play Utah, I believe it was the yeah. second night of a back-to-back, and Jock had said, you know what? Well, remember, it started with it. the
0: Phoenix game the night before where they were awful for three that's, quarters, and then they woke right. up in the fourth quarter.
1: That's right. They yeah. make the comeback, they didn't win, and then Jock's kind of message that night, but certainly before the game the next night was, I'm looking to play, we're looking to play a 48-minute game and win. There's no excuses. We need everybody out there, and that mindset. Because I think what happened, Tim, you would you could speak to this. This idea of oh back to back, oh it's so tough. You over there's a reason why in Denver they put the altitude on the, uh, yeah, on, the on, on the court yeah, there. Yeah, they yeah. want you to know. They want it in your head. Yeah, you're tired, and it's real thin air up here. By constantly telling the po- oh back to back, how tough is Jeff? No, 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 no. We're going out tonight. We're going to play our hardest and we'll see how we do. They won that game. I thought that game was important for them on that trip. It was at a time when, you know, when the team's kind of teetering a little bit. I thought that was the right message from the coach. To your point, Chris, just the idea, like, go out and play, guys. It's basketball that we're doing here. And I think sometimes when you simplify it like that, I thought he did that in a really smart way to the media. Now, I'm assuming he said something along those lines to the team. I think that kind of resonated with a lot of people. It's basketball. Let's just go and play.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the other night, you know, they had to uh, back to back the other night. And Jack always has a a pretty good phrase for us. You know, I know this hit well with Chris the other night when he said about going for, you know, they played it back to back. They're coming from Brooklyn. They're going out to play Detroit. It was still an important game. And he said, you got to choose your hard. You know, what's hard? Is this hard? You know, like you ever roof in the summer? You know what I mean? Like stuff like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. How many people had to take two buses to go to work this morning? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So choose what your heart is. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny too, you brought that, that game in Utah up, Frank. And that was a, that's a, I, I think when we look back on it, that'll be a major turning point in the organization. Again, spurred on by Jacques Vaughn, not letting him have excuses. Um, because that was the game where, remember, Kyrie Irving had an unbelievable game that night. Yeah. And I, And it started that stretch where Kyrie Irving just had a a period of play there for, what, about three weeks where he just played at an all-NBA level. And that spurred him now to then ask for the extension, which he didn't get, which then led them to ask for a trade. So when you think about it, that one game, whatever Jacques Bond's message got through, (laughs) it ended up being like, all right, here's what we have to do. And then it ended up, you know, giving them the kick over the ledge, maybe they needed to move on and make the trades that they had to make and get to where we are right now. But in the end, I think it all, if you're, if you're a net fan, if you're in the Nets organization, I think uh, sometimes when you go through tough times, it doesn't seem like it a blessing in disguise at, at that moment. But in the end, it, it ends up being that. And yeah. I think that, right now the Nets are in a good place as we get ready now to look toward the postseason and look toward this playoff series. Let's get into that. Let, let's try to shift gears now and talk about where we are with this Net team and and what they can do coming up in the playoffs. I, I did a mailbag episode a couple of weeks ago where uh, my producer, Isaac, was asking me the questions and someone had sent in, you know, what do I think is the best matchup? And I, you know, I'm kind of saying it in a way that's that's part serious, but part, you know, uh, I don't know. Like I was talk radio, but um I said none of the none of the matchups are really gonna favor the Nets in the first round. But if I had to pick one, maybe I'll take my chances with Philadelphia because there just seems to be the the biggest implosion chance from a team <laughs> would be the Sixers, right? Like you could see them maybe winning a championship, and you could also see them. Listen, it's a hot topic now. We've seen a lot of testy uh stuff between teammates, but you can see like them starting to infighting or guys, you know, getting banged up, you know, Harden, and Doc Rivers got a lot of pressure on him. Uh, you know, so I'm not rooting for injuries or rooting for mayhem, but at the same time, you know, I think with the Sixers sometimes that that can that that lingers there. That's a that's that's there in the in the in the air in Philadelphia as you might say. Frank, you know those <laughs> fans down there. You know that oh, environment. It's,
1: uh, you you guys are going to have a blast uh, <laughs> there because it's, it's going to be intense. You know, it's funny because, you know, and I still have to fill out my ballot, which I'm going to do. I have to do within a couple hours here. And to me, it's been such a turnoff this year. You know, we always have fun about the whole MVP debate. We always say that it starts at halftime at the first game of the season. (laughs) You know, it's such a silly topic that everybody in the NBA jumps all over. But I thought it kind of took an ugly turn this year because I think especially, you know, Giannis and Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, three, you know, really good players. But there's been way too much talk. And I think for Embiid, I know that he really wants to win it. And there's something to be said, you know, for wanting to win the award. I, I get all that. And there's a very good chance that he's going to. But we know, come on, guys, you make your bones in all these sports by how you do in the postseason. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's yet to be out of the second round. That's not all of his fault, obviously. But, you know, if we're going to get on guys like, you know, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, Reggie Miller, Stockton Malone for never winning a championship, those guys went to the finals. So, you know, those were still all-time players, but they made it to an NBA finals. And I think for Embiid, I just wonder, I don't think he'll be like this, but I agree with you from this standpoint. Chris, that team has a lot to lose. There'll be a lot of pressure on them going into the series. Embiid, it's not about how you perform in the regular season anymore. You got to now do it in the playoffs. We've seen James Harden. He could be up and down in the playoffs. He was great those first few games with the Brooklyn Nets, but we've seen Game 7s that he's played with the Houston Rockets. Last year, Game 6 against Miami, he, I don't know what happened to him in that game. So that team, there's a there's a lot going on there. Harden's future, Doc Rivers' future. If you can go in now, I know they went in there what was that, 2019, and took game one, you could get one of those first two games there. You will put a lot of pressure on that team. That's the best matchup for them. Boston's a very tough team. Milwaukee's Milwaukee. For a first-round matchup, if it had to be one of those three teams, I agree with you, I'm taking Philadelphia. That's the team I'd want to play. The The matchup they
0: had last, the last real matchup they had with the Sixers, this was not... The game on Sunday, the the season finale, which was the G League teams playing each other. But the first game where the Nets had all their new faces together, yep. the very first game was in Brooklyn, and the Nets had that game. Uh, they just couldn't score over the last six minutes, if you remember. And I think the right. Sixers barely got to 100. They just got to 100 points. Um, I, it, and when I looked back, I remember there was a, remember before the Boston game this year where the Nets went up to Boston, they were down 28 and ended up winning that game. That was still a time where they were trying to tinker with a lot of different strategies defensively and how to close out games, right? And I remember asking Jacques Vaughn bon before the game, because I had it in my mind. I said, when do you think this group looked the best this year, this new group? And he said, probably before the first, probably the first game we played together when they were just out there playing and switching everything and just playing really hard and excited to be together. And it resulted in what almost beating the Philadelphia 76ers. And I think after that Boston game, they kind of went back to that a little bit. Um, So, I mean, Capper, was there. Is there anything you could take out of the first matchup where you think of as a possible, you know, hope and optimism for the Nets? Or was that just, you know... An outlier that first game.
2: Yeah, it was 101 98. Remember, that was the Dinwiddie held on to the ball too long. I think you did that yep. game on TV, Chris, because I was watching yeah. it again. Um, that was the second game of back to back for them. Uh, and the Nets team came out and played energized. the Knicks
0: the night before, I believe.
2: Yeah. And, and so, yeah. Well, listen, it's going to be a monster challenge. There's no doubt about that. I think what the Nets have learned, because you have this week off right now, and you could, you could, argue with people, hey, might be an opportunity to put in a new defense to surprise him with this or surprise him with that. I think what Jacques Vaughn learned whenever he tried to tinker with things and make things a little bit more complicated, maybe play a drop defense against pick and roll, maybe a little zone, things This didn't work out too well with this group. And that's what happened in the game one you're just talking about. That first game they got together. Okay, you know, do simple better is another one of his phrases. And then that's, I want to keep it simple uh, you know, obviously Joel Embiid puts you know it gives anybody a ton of problems. I I think I think Claxton will start on him. You could do the idea of maybe Claxton on PJ Tucker and he hangs out and maybe somebody else guards. I don't know, but I think I think the Nets are going to keep it simple. They're going to play it straight up. They're going to do what they did well and see where it takes them in this game.
1: Yeah, you know Embiid at thirty seven in that game, he he was a monster, but. Two things that stuck out for that game for me. Mikael Bridges late. That was his first game, correct, with the Brooklyn Nets. Yeah. Remember, he it was a weird angle that he took at the basket on that layup that he missed. Yeah. What I love was after the game, it was his first game, you know, Brooklyn Bridges, the whole thing. He was really disappointed. I love the fact that his emotion was based on the result, not on how he played. And he knew he made a, you know, everyone is throwing flowers at him, but he's taking away from it. I missed a layup at the end that we should have won. That was one. But then Spencer Dinwiddie late drives baseline. Harden slides over. That's right. The ball gets knocked out of bounds. They call Philadelphia ball. Spencer's arguing. One time when Spencer was in the right here, he's going (laughs) back and forth with the official. And sure enough, the last two minute report said that should have been a foul on Harden. It was interesting after the game. It kind of took on the attitude of the team because Spencer said during his post-game press conference, well, we don't have any superstars, so we're not going to get those calls. It's only, It wasn't a whining. It was almost a way of these are the things, the other things that we have to overcome, almost taking on kind of that underdog mentality. There were two things that happened late in the game, which were playoff-like. A late-game shot that Mikkel Bridges knows that he has to make. Missed it, again, yeah. a weird angle. And then a controversial call that goes against you. Those things happen in the playoffs. So although it was all the way back in uh, February, the end of that game certainly had a playoff type a feel to it. And it didn't work out for the Brooklyn Nets, a bad call against them. But I think that was actually a good learning experience from that. And I think it also told you a little bit of the character of the team, the way that they acted and the things that they said afterwards. I actually thought that was encouraging. Well, one of the things that came up uh, throughout
0: the course of this, you know, again, we talked about how this new group playing together, um, I, I think, raised the bar that first game by how close it was late, by how well they played against the Sixers. And then, you know, they went through some peaks and valleys, and and, and some of the valleys were propped up in that game. How do we close out games? How do we win close games? You know, we saw them not be, you know, be able—we saw them lose a lot of leads late trying to figure out how to play. They've kind of been caught between Spencer Dinwiddie just sort of, he called it elephant hunting, you know, big game hunting, just trying to find the weak link and attack him. Or how, how much do we continue to play our regular offense? As we get into the playoffs, Capper, now, what's the best approach for this team? Because they're going to be in, you know, crunch situations here. Have they learned anything the last two months about how they need to close out games, especially – important games in a postseason.
2: Yeah, no, it's both of those things, right? You spent, there was a lot of Spencer Dinwiddie targeting and going after weaker opponents and having, you know, attacking the basket, making some plays. And yet, uh, I just think, it's important that they get into what they're doing earlier in the clock. I think that's an issue, too, because even if Spencer targets early, that means he doesn't have to commit to shooting once he, once he attacks. Uh, I think there's going to be some of that. I also think they're going to work on uh, Mikel Bridges more and get him involved and make sure they're going to I think they're going to have they found right now that I think they need a balance in that going too long, too early too, or, you know, too much with Spencer isolation, not healthy they got to work in a little bit of Bridges, but they've got to execute also. They got to understand that the game is different over the last five, six minutes. Every possession is magnified. The screens, the cuts, the handling, the taking care of the ball, uh, they've got to be ready for it. And uh, if they can get in that position, uh, I think they'll they'll mix it up with, with both of those situations.
1: Don't you think Spencer, like look at the way that he played overtime against Minnesota. You know, you want to talk about like you know, close game, playoff type of atmosphere where he had the two baskets, but then he then he drove into the paint, found yes. Mikkel Bridges, found Royce O'Neal, and who, who knocked down the shot from the corner? Was that Doreen, Doreen Finney-Smith? Smith. Yeah. yeah, that was, I thought his floor game in, that, in overtime, I I thought he was brilliant. I, it felt like Jock Vaughn had gotten to him, really, like it really started to click. Because if you guys remember, when they went to Madison Square Garden, I think it was a couple of days after that first Philly game, and he was, you know, you could tell he was struggling. Like, it's, is it me against the Knicks? And I got to try to score every time down. And he was missing, and he felt he was fouled. I really thought that as time went on, whatever Jacques Vaughn is, like, really how he wants him to play, I think it was really starting to click for Spencer, especially in that Minnesota game.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jacques, you know, former point guard, he's whispered in, yep. in Dinwiddie's ear, it's been an ongoing dialogue. And think about, it too, late in the year. So with the Nets, Spencer... uh I think 10th in total assists in the NBA, 10th in NBA assist to turnover ratio. Um, Since the trade deadline, sixth in assists per game, 9.1 assists per game. Only Trey Young um, had more total assists than Dinwiddie since the trade deadline. We were talking about 10th. I'm talking about total season 10th for Dinwiddie. And he didn't handle the ball nearly as much in Dallas. Um, You know, he hasn't shot it great, but like you mentioned, some of those guys, you you bring up Finney Smith, right? Guy that people think, well, didn't shoot it well As a net. And uh, but he he was only 30% from three, right? During in his time with the Nets. But over the last four games that he played, he was 10 of 17. He's starting to, he's starting to get it. He's starting to understand. Think about Cam Johnson, right? He's up to 38% as a net shooting threes. People think, oh, this guy hasn't shot it well. 38% is a really good percentage, what you could do. Think of Royce O'Neill and the buckets that he makes at crunch time. And then you still have guys coming off the bench like Seth Curry and Joe Harris, who we know can make three pointers, all off of Spencer Dinwiddie being able to get downhill, know when to shoot, know when to take it. So I think these are all things that are gonna be keys for the Nets. You know, Cabra, you talk about the three point line is the it's the great equalizer. When you're the underdog, it's the slingshot, you know, it's David It's David with the little slingshot is the three-pointer to knock out Goliath. And, you know, Nets, that's going to be a real key in the series because, you know, even going some smaller lineups, um, if they can create good looks behind the three-point line, they play well enough in the other areas defensively that that's how you're going to have to be able to beat the Sixers.
2: Well, you're gonna to have to hang, and you're gonna to have to play with great pace too. If you get stops, you're gonna to have to get out and run the floor and see if you can get some threes that way. And think about, and maybe a guy like Claxton may maybe outrunning uh, a guy like Embiid, and maybe getting a couple, one or two of those a game also. But they could get some open threes that way. Uh, you know, moving to basketball, it's gonna be interesting because Embiid's gonna be playing in a drop defense for the most part, right? He's gonna be back. Now you think of just thinking about the big man back and the you know, the mid range shots that become available. The reason, you know, teams play that because they don't want to beat up. I understand that it also allows the other players to stay closer uh, at the three-point line to the shooters that the Nets have. So that's good. Nets are good when the ball really pops. Everybody knows yep. that, right? Drive and kick, move it one side to the other, get it hopping. And if they play with confidence like that, I think they could get, you know, get threes, they could get shots. And if they can convert them, that will certainly help. But, you know, they haven't been a team that's exploded game after game for 125 points and given up 130. This has been a lower scoring team and uh, they've got to be able to do enough uh, defensively against uh, the Philadelphia. They've got to somehow limit Embiid's inf- efficiency and limit his ability, and really all the Sixers' ability to get to the free throw line. That that is going to be a big part. If they can keep the score around one ten, make enough threes, you, you, you know, you're you're curious to see where this game could go.
1: What would you guys do with Claxton off the floor? You you go. Remember they they used uh, Royce O'Neal on. Jokic, they use them on Gobert. Would you do that? Would you put Dorian Finney-Smith? What would you guys do to play small and spread them
2: out? Uh, I, I'd probably play Finney-Smith and, and play him. And, but, uh, you know, obviously, you know, then he's got to be able – that's what we talk about him maybe being a wild card. If he's playing that spot uh, – because they, one thing Embiid doesn't do quite as this year like he has in the past, he hangs out – not hangs out – he dominates – from the elbow right now. He's not on the block as much as he used to be. He gets it in that foul line area. And unlike any big man in the history of the game that's been as dominant as him, I've never seen a guy be able to handle the basketball and dribble and pivot as well as he does. He doesn't get the ball on the block as much. He brings the ball to the block with dribble, handle, handle, pivots. And it's a different look that that Doc Rivers and his staff adopted this year. And I can't believe how good he is at it. A, you know what it is? It's it's really hard to double-team from the elbows. You can see it coming. You can pick people apart if you're Embiid. On the block, you can double easier and rotate easier, but he's still going he to dominate you. But that's where he is right now. That's why I think Finney Smith could guard him and then maybe spread him out on the other end. And again, if Embiid doesn't guard him, can he make above the break threes? You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and knock down some shots. I think that could be really, really important. You know, it's funny. You talked
0: about it though, uh, Frank, you, you touched on it before about that game that the Nets played against the Sixers back in February, where Embiid got his 37 or 38 points and got to the free throw line. And yet that was still a, a, a close yeah. game down the stretch. Can you limit, well, so I want to, I want to. Say, my first question is going to be, can you limit other guys and be able to win that way? Yeah. Say, like, all right, the Nets, you know, Embiid's going to get his 38. He's going to get to the line. But can we stop Tyree Maxey from getting 25 yeah. a game? Can you stop Tobias Harris from having a big game? You know, some of these other wild cards that and we haven't even talked about James Harden. We'll get to that in a minute. But the other part of is, I think going back to your point capper about um, Claxton and then defending and be able to play fast, I think my favorite sequence of the season this year (laughs) uh, came in that game with the Nets and the Sixers. Nick Claxton, he he blocked a Joel Embiid baseline little short shot, right? He got out, contested it, blocked it, controlled it. Nets broke out and they threw a lob and Claxton got a dunk on the other end. And then he... (laughs) He taunted the sixer bench by pointing to the Bill Russell patch on his jersey. Yeah. Like <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: it shows you, first of all, how, how much that, that Nick Claxton has grown as a player right now. He does have that little, he's got confidence. There's, Nick Claxton yeah. does not lack confidence and how that could be the kind of, those are kind of plays that are going to need in this series. <laughs> I just thought, that that's just reminded me. That discussion reminded me had to be how to be my favorite sequence of the whole season this year. Because we talked about yesterday, Capper. Nick Claxton's got an opportunity here. We, we talk, I always bring up the Ryan Holiday book called "The Obstacle Is the Way." You know, Joel Embiid is the obstacle right now for yeah. the Nets. Nick Claxton has an absolute golden opportunity to tell everybody why he is the most improved player in the NBA this year, why he is possibly a candidate for defensive player of the year down the road, and how much of a factor he can be. You talk about how playoffs make reputations. Hey, Nick Claxton, you got a real opportunity here right now going against Joel Embiid.
2: And that doesn't mean Embiid can't get 30, can't get 35. It's just how he does it. Is it going to be ridiculously efficient? And I think the big key for Claxton is, can he defend... Embiid, when Embiid puts it on the deck, I, I just watched the game. He, he can't get cheap handsy fouls. Yeah. It, uh, he's got to make sure he keeps his hands back. And if he can play defense, he can play defense with his feet, can he limit the efficiency of the greatness of Joel Embiid? That's all you want. And you can't let him live at the, fr- live at the free throw line. I mean, he averages 11-12 a game attempts. He shoots 85%. He dominates from that area also. Defend well enough. Keep him around 50% shooting. Keep him somewhat off the line. Guard everybody else. You Give yourself maybe a chance.
1: Isn't it funny, too? The guy was basically an afterthought in the playoffs last year. And now you think about how much, to your point, Chris, how much he's grown. Yeah. And now how vital he is for them to win. This is a guy that we're talking about. Yeah, and and think about he hasn't backed down
2: to Embiid this year. No, yeah. he won't back th- He— He's gotten in some verbal stuff with them too. I
0: think you know we compare we compare Jared Allen's development a lot with Nick Claxton, right? Because Jared was was here and 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 how he grew into an all-star. But think about that last time the Nets and Sixers played in the playoffs, how Jared Allen got bullied. Yeah by Joel Embiid. Remember there was the elbow twice. knocking down twice, right? That's when, uh, you know, Jared Dudley ended up getting in the scuffle at the game at the, in Barkley Center because, but that hasn't happened with Nick Claxton this year. In fact, the game, I remember the game in Philadelphia where they got double technicals because yeah. Claxton made a good play on Embiid and on the other end and then Embiid came down the other end and was talking to him and gave him a hard shove and Claxton got into it with him. Like Claxton hasn't, hasn't <laughs> backed down to Embiid, I think that's another, you know, key to
1: trying to defend remember him. What, remember what Nick Claxton said? He said, yeah, he told me Come, I bet you won't say that to my face. So Nick Claxton stopped turning <laughs> and he said whatever he said to his face. It didn't he wasn't aggressive. He stopped to turn, he repeated it. Yeah. He did if Nick Claxton were more of a uh, veteran player, he would not have gotten a technical. He actually unnerved Joel Embiid in that game. Yes. There's no doubt about it. He he got under his skin, yeah, so, which is which isn't a bad thing. Yeah, so part of not having that fear that doesn't mean that, yeah. you know, like you yeah. said, it, it, he's he's there's going
0: to be things he's got to do, and and yeah, it's it's all fine and good, and B's not going to back down either. I mean, that's <laughs> no. the other part, but you no. know, can you get him rallied? Can you get him riled up? You know, you, you mentioned last year's playoff and what you learned, because as a general manager, and I'm sure Sean Marks learned, all right, this is what we need now to compete with the Celtics, right? Thinking you were still going to have Durant and Kyrie Irving. I remember talking to Brian Scalabrini about this last year during the series, where the Nets just didn't have those size at the wings and two-way guys, right? That Steve Nash had to constantly make decisions: do I put in offensive-minded players or do I put in defensive-minded players? And the Nets, kind of, if you think about it, built themselves back up. with The development of Claxton, who you said Frank was an afterthought last year in the playoffs, the, the Claxton now think about what a big help he could have been last year. And the other guy, that, you know, they added a guy like Royce O'Neill, no. who is a big 3D wing that they desperately needed last year and didn't have. We also could, you know, remember that Joe Harris was hurt last year. Um, and now you've got other guys like that and Finney Smith and and Bridges and, you know, Dinwiddie's got size. So, Cam Jones. you know, they don't have the star that you can play through late in the game but it seems like all the other things that you need to win in the postseason—that's kind of the, the way the Nets are building this team right now.
1: You know, I, I thought the Royce O'Neal pickup was uh, it was an interesting one because the guy can do so many different things. How many games has he won just by attacking the basket and getting putbacks, or you know, knocking down big three pointers? He could guard multiple positions. Plus, he brings kind of an edge. You could tell that he was well coached with Utah. I, I think they've done a really good job. And let's like you said, Chris. A lot of those pieces that they brought in were to play around Kevin Durant. But when you get a guy like Royce O'Neal, he's so good, it really doesn't matter who he plays with. You know, it's he's the classic role player. And, you know, there are sometimes you don't even notice him out there, but he's always he always seems to make an impact. And I like the fact that he really gets it done on the defensive end. Those are the kind of players you win with. You need guys like Royce O'Neal on your team.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I tell Capper this all the time. I'm president of the Royce O'Neill fan club. Yeah, and I talked about his clutch time numbers. You mentioned it, right? Two game winners this year. The game at Portland. The game at Miami. Miami. Putbacks, right? Um, shot 50 percent in clutch time minutes. He played more. He played 70 more minutes than any clutch time player in the Nets this year. Wow. Um, he's just a guy that is. A, he's a winning player and a glue right. guy. And think about we talk about reputations made in the postseason. His first year. Right, this is a guy that took the circuitous route to the NBA, playing in the Bundesliga, Tapper, <laughs> um, and then coming in, and, and, and Utah trusts him as a rookie to be a starter, and they're in the playoffs that year. He got a reputation as a really good defender, because who is he guarding in the first round of the playoffs that year? It was against Houston, and he was guarding James Harden. <laughs> So, you know, they kind of went like, wow. It was like, I, look at this rookie out there, this veteran rookie, kind of older rookie that's, that's guarding James Harden. And I'm not saying, you know, O'Neal, his, his perimeter defense isn't probably the, his, his strength. Um, but he is one of those guys to say, all right, you know, we need somebody, we need to change a pace on Joel Embiid. Let's see, let's throw Royce O'Neal in there. Yeah. You know, we need a guy to change a pace on James Harden here. Let's switch Royce O'Neal out on him. Like he can do a lot. He's a,
2: he's a Swiss Army knife. Royce O'Neal's hands are what impressed me. You know, he's unbelievable. His feel and he understands when he gets caught in situations when he's against a bigger player, he understands to do his work with his feet and then he gets the ball down low. I don't know. There's a player with better hands at raking it out of big man's hands uh, better than Royce O'Neal. J- just another example of the of the many things he does for a team. Uh, so now we're getting set here. They're like. We haven't taught, we just brought up
0: Royce O'Neal on James Harden in that playoff series, you know, years ago when when Royce was a rookie. We've gone through this and we haven't really even mentioned James Harden at all in this, uh, in this, you know, previewing this Nets Sixers uh, playoff series going to begin on Saturday. Um, James Harden's had a really, quietly has had a really good year this year. His assists are over 10 a game. He's over 20 points a game. Um, when you look at it I mean Frank when you watch him have, has he kind of figured things out and how to play with Joel Embiid that's always been the big question with the Sixers too, how
1: you mix in with Joel Embiid I, I think he has and I also think you know the one thing that he's adjusted to a lot better remember you know, during the regular season if you go back 5-6 years ago yeah, he was going to the foul line it felt like 15-18 times a game because in the regular season they were calling those fouls right. now the rip-through move and everything else He's not getting those. He wasn't getting those calls in the playoffs. I think he's adjusted to that. You know, a couple of things from him from postseason wise. I you know, his last ever playoff game with the Brooklyn Nets. let's remember the guy was out there on one leg, and I give him a lot of credit because superstar players, you know, they're held to a different standard. and to go out there when you're not even close to one hundred percent, I thought that said a lot about him that he tried to gut his way through. I don't like the way that he his the way he departed Brooklyn, but his last ever game with them. Great playoff game with them. I I thought that said a lot about him, but he's got, you know, he's got some warts on his playoff resume and, uh, you know, the latest one is game six against Miami last year. So he'll be under pressure. He can score, but he's not, he's not the threat that he once was, because I think athletically he's lost a little bit. I'm not as worried about him as I am about a guy like Tyrese Maxey, who's so darn quick and just, you know, blows past you. Harden is a threat. I'm not trying to say that he's not a threat. I just don't think he's as big of a threat as he was a few years ago. That's for sure. But he's had to play a
0: different way. You know, I've talked about in the past that the Sixers, when they had Ben Simmons, and and let's not forget, Ben Simmons was a, you know, all-star, rookie of the year. I mean, he was a a force. Even last time the Nets played them in the playoffs— in Philadelphia, but I, I always use this analogy with Capper. He loves it when I would say that the Sixers were like brunch, you know, it was, it was, and I never loved brunch because I I like to make a commitment to either breakfast or lunch, (laughs) right? I don't like to mix the two. And I felt like they were If you play one way with Joel and B, they were awesome. If you played another way with Ben Simmons, they were awesome. But the two together, it was like having a chick, you know, piece of chicken and an egg on the same plate. It's just not natural. It just didn't work. Now they're more like surf and turf, and I don't know. That doesn't mean that they're the best surf and turf, but they they figured how to complement each other. They can both be main courses in each other, but they know how to play together.
2: Yeah. And they've got a good side piece, you know, picking up uh, <laughs> uh, P.J. Tucker. You know, that's a good side. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. that's that's a that's, that's a that's a Brussels sprout. You know what I mean? That's something you like. <laughs> right there. He, he, I think they but don't. do you ver- think?
0: Do you think P.J. Tucker was kind of almost like a little bit of a a, a Durant stopper? Yeah. Like that. Like Maybe. they brought him in to be that guy, and now
2: you know, you don't have. There's no Durant anymore. Maybe. But I th- I still think he serves a very good purpose for their team. He doesn't need yeah. the basketball. He knows exactly who he is, and if left alone, you could maybe I mean he can make that corner three at a close to forty percent this year. And over the last few years, he shot it well. I mean, some teams elect to put a guy like Claxton on him, and then they roam like like I you know like the Celtics might do that with with Williams Robert Williams. They did it with Horford when I watched last week. Uh, maybe the Nets could do some of that, but he's, he's one of those intangible guys that I think really helps their team.
0: Well, Tim Cabstraw, Frank Isola, is there anything we need to add before we, uh, we move on here and what's been a pretty lengthy analysis of the Nets season and this series coming up?
1: What's realistic for the Brooklyn Nets? I think an upset is, is, is possible if they get to a game six, would you so, guys be happy? That's two wins. And now you're playing an elimination game on your court. I think anything that has it where there's a threat. Yeah. You know, I think anything where
0: the Nets sort of put a fear into Philadelphia that it's a threat, that the Sixers have to work for this if they're going to get through it. I think that's a, a a step in the right direction for Brooklyn.
2: Yeah, I'm I agree sure. with that. That's perfectly said.
0: <laughs> uh and what we really, really look forward to is you don't have to get on an airplane, you know, we just go down the turnpike, get nice. this one settled. I think it's, uh, it's going to be fun just to see this new group that I think, I think there's a, I think there's an energy about net fans right now with this new group. Um, and I think that they've got a team they could really root for and pull for. And I think that's what makes this series, uh, exciting. Gets underway on Saturday, one o'clock, by the way, you can uh, you can listen to us on every game on the radio. If the Yankees are on, we're only on the FM side. Just a little just a little uh, a little uh, programming note for everybody. And you could also hear the games on the Brooklyn Nets app or on Sirius Sirius XM NBA Radio, where you could also find Frank Isola every morning with former Net Brian Scalabrini, mm-hmm. on the the starting lineups. Which I'm not just saying this because you're on it. Um, Capper and I talk about all the time. We, I, it's, it's a must listen every day for the NBA fan.
2: It is. It's the best, best show. I, I, I'm glad it's on the app right now, but I can't, it's could be a great TV show and it's, it's you and Brian are fabulous. And Thank I know you. Brian Myers is a great job as your producer and all, But some of the callers are my favorite, like extra <laughs> cast members of a show that I've ever heard ever. I, I, I yeah. get when they cut they start calling out. I get to know who they are now. And I get yeah. the biggest kick out of how they how they call in you know, almost daily. and it's really, really entertaining and and as you guys know, the
1: fans, you know you and you guys run into them at every single game you know the fans are so passionate that that's they're the reasons that we have the jobs that we have like to have like these crazy passionate fans they're funny <laughs> you know what you like about it too they really enjoy the sport they root for their team but i would say 99% of them don't go overboard with you know you want to be passionate about your team and about the sport without crossing that line i think most fans are like that and Especially, I, what I love yeah.
0: Yeah. And I will love the way you and Brian, you really respect those callers. Like you respect their opinions and, and, you know, because they know the league. Yeah, like they do. Calling, they know the league. You're right. So it's a really fun listen.
2: It's fun. Listen, and it's so much more than basketball. The way you entertain Frank, the different, you're a good impressions guy like Carino is. And. Just I don't know the wheel, the wheel, the the Kyrie <laughs> wheel, and all. I mean the different, the different things you guys have created over the years uh, makes it not just basketball, but just you know it's about entertaining too, right? I mean, and I don't know a show that compares with it, so I really enjoy it yeah, every I- day.
1: I I really appreciate it. and We talked about it today, and I gave Brian Myers a hard time, who runs everything for the NBA app. I told him that the great Chris Carino brought up a good point. We're not playing (laughs) enough radio calls. And when we do play radio calls, we love to play, uh, you know, we we root for something good to happen in a net game because we could play uh, the calls that you guys do because obviously you guys are – you know, top shelf well, I, when it comes to broadcasters, there's no doubt about
0: I, it. I'm glad you made that point. I, my point was to you yesterday when I saw you, it was like, Battle of the Broadcasters used to be a lot I more agree. radio-centric because you're on serious, But ever since it went to the app, you guys start to play TV calls and, you know, it, the picture is the star in TV. I agree.
1: You know? I agree. Plus, the radio call always sounds good. When you play it again on radio because you're describing everything that's happening yes. in that moment. A lot of times when we're playing the TV calls, to your point, there's like pauses and things like that. You got Tim doing the game with Iron Eagle, and he's laying out. You know, we got we got to get Radio <laughs> Tim firing away, and then you and but then you'll go to Brian. Like, look at that!
0: Look at that! And I'm, going, I'm on the radio.
1: I can't see it. I know. I know. All right. Good, know. good criticism. See, no, I appreciate. it. But uh, how many more shows are you doing today? You got this is around the Horn, Pti, PTI don't, Nothing. Got around the horn twice this week. Got a little Nets on Saturday. I don't know where I'm going to be, either Philadelphia, or maybe we'll do it from the studio. We're trying to figure that out. Hopefully yeah. I'll be there for game three in Brooklyn, though. I'm looking forward to that. Go to Brooklyn, I see all the celebrities. Chris Carino, Tim <laughs> Capstraw, Allie Love, all the big celebrities you run into in, uh, at Barclays.
0: <laughs> yeah, you never know what you're going to run into. Uh, Frank Isola, Tim Capstraw, really appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for the time, and uh, we'll be doing this again soon, I'm sure. Thanks, boys. All right my thanks to the great Tim Capstraw, my partner of the last 21 seasons we have done done close to I think it's going to be close to 200 playoff games together, and it's always fun and exciting. And again, you can hear all the games on WFAN 101.9 FM, and the Brooklyn Nets app, especially so as you get into the postseason and uh, and you may have a national broadcast, you don't have your local yes broadcast and you want you want to hear the Nets perspective on the game, you know, use it as a little side companion. You know, listen to the game while you watch it, uh, me and Capper. Uh, and uh, tweet us, at BKNetsRadio is the way to reach us. Thanks to the great Frank Isola uh, for joining us here, giving some insight. Uh, you can hear uh, Frank every morning on Sirius XM NBA Radio, and the starting lineup. Heading to Philadelphia, Nets and Sixers, 1 o'clock on Saturday, Game 1. Uh, maybe a little cheesesteak after the game, might do that. Or maybe go for the the roast pork broccoli rob hero, which is the underrated Philadelphia delicacy. For me, the uh, the roasted pork broccoli rob sandwich, uh, underrated delicacy there for Philadelphia. Um, there you go, little 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 little, uh, little something to eat. How about that for our finish here on the Voice of the Nats? My thanks to Isaac Lee, our producer, engineer extraordinaire. Thanks to Steve Goldberg. We'll talk to you again during the series as we get very net centric uh while the playoffs are going on and then we'll get back to some long uh long form pieces after that so thank you everybody for listening subscribing this has been the voice of the nets i'm chris carino enjoy the playoffs